Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Next Byte podcast. This episode, we're going to talk about NASA's plan to make rocket fuel on Mars. We're going to talk about how you can make transparent wood at scale and how rice can protect you from getting poisoning. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Byte podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. All right, first up is an article of research out of NASA's JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and what they've created is MOXIE, which stands for Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. It's a mouthful. I like to just call it by its acronym, which is MOXIE. Makes sense. Um, and MOXIE's whole purpose is that it's an instrument to extract oxygen from Mars's atmosphere. Um, and if you don't know, Mars's atmosphere is about 95-96% carbon dioxide, which okay. is much different from Earth's atmosphere in that it's got enough oxygen for us to walk around, breathe, talk, set things on fire. Uh, you can't do any of those things on Mars. So they're going to use Mars's atmosphere, try to break down the CO2, extract oxygen from it, so that they can use oxygen for all the great things that we need oxygen for on Earth. So is Moxie's goal to produce oxygen for human beings once we colonize Mars? Uh, it's a secondary goal of the project, but the main goal actually is to create oxygen for rocket fuel. Okay. And if you don't know, rocket fuel actually has to have oxygen in it to burn. And they bring in oxygen or oxidizers as the propellant in rocket fuel. And so rocket fuel is really heavy, and it's actually physically almost impossible to bring enough rocket fuel to Mars to have a rocket be able to return from Mars to Earth. So personally, if I was going to Mars, I wouldn't want to go unless we had a return plan. So I'm happy that NASA is focusing on this. Right. Um, and so the way that they do it is they're planning to only basically bring enough rocket fuel with them to get to Mars. And then they will use MOXIE to create oxygen on Mars's atmosphere. And they can put that oxygen back in the rocket uh, to give it enough fuel to shoot back to Earth. Okay, so can Ox Moxie make enough um, oxygen to do that right now? Um, so Moxie is being attached to Mars's or to NASA's Perseverance rover. Okay. Um, currently, in lab tests at least, it was only capable of producing about six to ten grams of oxygen per hour, which, for context, is about how much oxygen a small dog needs okay. to breathe every hour. Um, and so, in theory, they could have sent a small dog to Mars and it could just live breathing off of Moxie's air. But that's not actually what they care about. Um, what they care about is testing it during different uh, atmospheric conditions on Mars. So they're going to conduct 10 different tests throughout the first Mars year, which is actually two Earth years. So the first two years that Moxie's on Mars, it's going to conduct 10 different tests to try and see if it can produce enough oxygen and the reason they do different tests is because there can be different atmospheric conditions at different altitudes. The air might be a different density, be a different temperature. Uh, basically, like the seasonal and climate conditions that we see here on Earth, they aren't quite as exaggerated on Mars, but they want to make sure that those different conditions, that MOXIE still works. Does that, that make sense? sense? Yeah, it does. 
So they just want to make sure that they're getting the right, I guess, quality of oxygen out of the process, regardless of the season. So they want to make sure they have the right purity and also the right quantity. Um, gotcha. And if it works, then I think they plan to send a moxie that's 200 times larger. And they figure that that will produce enough oxygen for them to be able to, you know, save up oxygen on Mars and tanks and then uh, send uh, humans back from Mars to Earth. So the 200 gotcha. times will only go if Moxie's successful, but if it does, it's basically the key to the return flight from Mars to Earth. Well, the approach makes a lot of sense to me. And honestly, I'm pretty excited to hear about how Moxie does after the two-year mission. But in the meantime, let's take it back down to Earth and talk about transparent wood. So transparent wood, it's an interesting material, especially in applications where you want something that is transparent, but also high performance, specifically when you're talking about it's like mechanical properties. And the conventional of method of producing transparent wood is actually kind of simple. You take a piece of wood and you submerge it in a chemical solution to strip it of lignin. Lignin is the portion that is actually coloring the wood. So that's the portion that is absorbing the light and making it non-transparent. You submerge it, get rid of the lignin, and then once it's out, you still have like this kind of porous structure and you want to fill it in with epoxy and boom, you have uh, transparent wood. So they got this established process to make transparent wood. You also mentioned that this is a uh, sustainable process. Are there any downsides in terms of sustainability in the current method of making transparent wood? Yeah, so that that's kind of the issue with the current approach, right? So ideally, it should be sustainable because you're using wood, but because of the chemical waste you're producing, um, it isn't. And it takes the process takes about six to twelve hours, so it's not time efficient either. And because it's not time efficient, it's also not cost efficient. Overall, it's just not scalable. And this is where the research comes in from University of Maryland's Clarkson School, Clark School of Engineering. Um, the researchers decided to take a closer look at the entire process of making transparent wood. And they noted that the chromophore groups within the lignin were the ones that they were the culprits of making the wood the color it had and being essentially light absorbing. So they had a thought. What if instead of removing the lignin, which is actually removing the mechanical properties that we care about and weakening the wood whenever we make transparent wood, what if we just decolor the lignin by removing the chromophores? The process they outline, again, is it's pretty straightforward. They're taking hydrogen peroxide, which is, yes, a chemical, but they're using much smaller quantities of it and actually brushing it on the surface of wood. Then they're leaving it out in the sunlight. The UV goes through... Um, causes the chemical process which actually removes the chromophores and again what you're left with is a piece of like kind of transparent wood that still has the different pores in it that you want to fill in with epoxy to then end up with transparent wood some of the benefits it has over the conventional approach is that it's a it's a lot faster um, much less chemical waste and it is substantially stronger if i remember correctly it is anywhere between 50 to 150 times stronger than the conventional approach, depending on what cut of wood you're using, you know, whether it's the transverse cut or the longitudinal, which is amazing. And again, if, if you're using transparent wood, one of the greatest properties is its mechanical strength. So you don't want to be compromising that throughout the manufacturing process. That's pretty awesome. It seems like they've done a great job of targeting what's actually the root cause of the color. Exactly. Um, so they can keep all the great parts of the wood they like, the strength, uh, you know, the 
way that it, it's not great at conducting heat, which it also helps, I, I imagine, in some of its end applications. Absolutely. Without, uh, you know, taking such a widespread approach that they also damage the wood. Um, and they also reduce the amount of toxic sludge that they're creating. So I think that's great. Exactly. And you talked about the not, not um, losing too much heat through the material. That's actually one of the applications, you know. Within residential homes, you can apply this as like a window so that your HVAC system isn't working overtime during the, um, the winter and summer reason to make your home either stay warm or cool because you're not going to be lo losing that um, temperature to the outside world. And on top of that, if someone accidentally throws a ball at your window, it's not going to break. It's going to bounce back because, again, it is wood. I, I am pretty interested by that, but I've never seen a piece of transparent wood, so I don't know this, but is how's the light transmittance through it is it clear almost like glass or will it like kind of look like looking through a foggy window do you know that's a great question it actually has a transmittance of about 96 percent so it, it it's it's pretty much like almost clear like if you put your if if you have a piece and you're holding it you can actually see your finger through it that's pretty cool. yeah it is pretty cool and another thing with this approach that dan i think you and i as amateur woodworkers would, would appreciate is that because you're not submerging it you're actually like painting on it you can make any kind of pattern you want. So if you want to put your initials and only have your initials be the portion of the wood that is transparent, you can do that. And, you know, so many hobbyist projects you could probably come up with. We should ask UMD's Clark School to make us a piece of wood that has the next bite painted transparent wood on it. You know what? I'm going to email them right after we're done recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if anyone knows someone at UMD, please connect us so we can get a piece of wood like that. Please do. Uh I really admire this research, especially how they're, you know, solving some of the problems that we traditionally do by trying to engineer our own material like glass. Instead, they're going back to what Mother Nature has given us. In the same vein, I want to talk about a new piece of research uh, from the SMART Alliance, which is a partnership between Singapore and MIT. And what they've created is SMART plants by embedding sensors in plants so that they can detect pollution. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, and essentially what they've done is by putting these little tiny nano sensors inside plants, they can find out when pollutants are making their way into the groundwater and into the soil and then up into the crops. Uh, the pollutant that they're targeting in this research is arsenic. Okay. And arsenic is really dangerous to human health, also dangerous to the environment. And it's pretty widespread actually. And the way it gets into our groundwater is from mining. So I think it's pretty important, and I'm glad that they chose a you know dangerous and widespread pollutant for their first hack at this research. Um, the way it works is they essentially put a needle inside a plant and inject it with these little nanobots, let's say nanosensors, that can detect arsenic. And they don't cause any damage to the plant, which I think is great. And it's actually much, much better than the current way that we detect arsenic, which is super cost intensive. Gotcha. So in what ways is it better? Is it more accurate? Uh, it's, it's, it seems to be better all around. Accuracy is just one of the benefits. So the way that they detect arsenic right now, it requires a lot of work and a lot of time. And what they do is they go take samples of soil They'll take samples of the leaves. They'll take samples of water. So they look at those three things. And then they take it all back and put it in a machine called a mass spectrometer, which is really, really expensive. And it can only detect about 
10 parts per billion of arsenic in these places, which is great. That's actually the detection limit that is required by environmental agencies. But the sensors made by the Smart Alliance team is actually five times more sensitive, so they can detect arsenic at 0.2 parts per billion, which I think is really, really incredible. So with this kind of detection, um, how do you know if the plant has sensed that there is a presence of arsenic? So the way that it indicates whether there's arsenic or not is it actually, you know, I said they inject these little nanosensors into the leaves of the plant. They actually inject it along the vascular system, which is basically the veins that carry water and nutrients throughout the plant. Gotcha. So if there's any arsenic in the soil or in the water that is being sucked up through the roots of the plant, the nanosensors that are sitting along the vascular system will start to grow as arsenic is brought up through the roots and into the plant. And it's by this fluorescent and glowing that they're able to detect it. And really, the only way that they keep track of these, they don't need batteries, they don't need fancy radio systems or wiring to all the plants. They actually have a relatively inexpensive Raspberry Pi with a camera on it. So just think about a small computer with a camera, just like your smartphone, Mm -hmm. that just looks and watches these plants. And if one of the plants starts to grow, starts to glow, rather... Um, and fluoresce, then they know that arsenic is present. So they can do this in real time. They can sense um, the levels of arsenic within the soil in real time. Well, that's one of the other main benefits as opposed to the current way of detecting arsenic is it's so expensive and it takes so much time that they only are able to do it a few times every year. But with this new method, it costs a lot less and they can actually do constant monitoring 24-7 essentially to make sure that there's no arsenic. Um, And that actually has great downstream implications for farmers, let's say. Uh, They can tell the day that arsenic contaminates their crops and kind of triage and make sure which ones they need to throw away and then keep the rest. Um, The way that it's done right now, every few months, you could find out too late and have to throw away a substantial amount of your crops. Got it. Wow. That makes sense. This is a really interesting approach. Yeah, it's, it's really, really incredible. And you said it's MIT that's doing this? It's MIT that's doing it uh, in uh, partnership with a university in Singapore as well. Gotcha. Wow, that's awesome. Shout out to the folks doing some uh, real great work, making sure we're safe, our soil is safe, and the farmers are protected from wasting tons and tons of their crop. Yeah. Um, Dan, I think that's actually a pretty good note to end uh, today's episode on. I agree. Um, we just want to take a moment to thank everyone also. We hit about a, our thousand downloads since we first started doing this show so dan and i and the team at revolver had a small celebration thank you guys for listening thank you guys for supporting and remember um, outside of our social media accounts if you have any questions feedback or anything you can shoot us an email at the next bite at revolver.com and we'd be happy to chat to hear what you have to say and improve the show as we go yeah thank you to everyone who's listening we'll see you next week bye everyone That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by Weevolver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit Weevolver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.